Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 1, verses 7 through 8. This is the word of God. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will will on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word this morning, and we're grateful to come to sing songs of worship and to learn from your word. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, you come upon us with power that these truths might transform the way we think and the way we live for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. In 1993, the man born with the name Vernon Howell was on every news station in America every day for almost two months straight. His name may not be familiar to you because he had officially changed it three years earlier, taking his new last name from the Hebrew transliteration of Cyrus the Great in Isaiah 45, and taking his new first name from the greatest royal ancestor of Jesus, David Koresh, the leader of the Branch Davidian cult who perished in Waco, Texas after a 51-day standoff with the FBI, dying alongside 79 others in the cult, including 21 children under the age of 16. He had convinced his followers that he was the Lamb of God in Revelation chapter 5. Allegedly, through multiple women, he sired 24 biological children whom he identified would become the 24 ruling elders of Revelation chapter 4. There's certainly a lot we can learn from this tragic story, but at a minimum, we can see how important it is to interpret this book of Revelation responsibly. With such symbolism and apocalyptic imagery, someone who's not grounded in the teaching of the Bible, someone who's not reading in community with church history can easily be led astray to believe almost anything. This book of Revelation was never meant to be some academic puzzle to be solved with charts, but rather a letter of great hope to a people enduring persecution for their faith in Jesus. It's not a book that should make us speculate, but one that should make us obey. A number of years ago, I was listening to a Bible teacher who had been traveling to other countries around the world, visiting Christians who had been enduring intense forms of persecution in totalitarian governments. And it was interesting, he would ask them their favorite books of the Bible. We might say Romans, maybe one of the Gospels. He said, almost without exception, they would say Daniel and Revelation, because they would say, in the end, our God wins. In this book of Revelation, they found great hope looking forward to God's certain victory over all human power and government and opposition. In Revelation, they found the strength to stand firm, to be faithful to the testimony of Jesus, knowing he's coming back to rescue them and establish true justice once for all. 
One scholar, Robert Mulholland, summarized the message of Revelation this way. How to live faithfully as citizens of the New Jerusalem in a fallen Babylon world. Let me say that again. Revelation is about how to live faithfully as citizens of the New Jerusalem in a fallen Babylon world. The spirit of Babylon wants nothing to do with God. The spirit of Babylon is about self and human achievement and ultimately wickedness. This was true when Revelation was written in Roman times, and that is true today. That's the spirit of this age. But our primary citizenship as Christians is in heaven or in the New Jerusalem. That's where we belong. We subscribe to the ways of that place, our homeland. We follow those customs and behaviors of that culture. Jesus-centered living as he instructed us according to his kingdom agenda. So how do we live faithfully according to that citizenship here in Babylon, as it were, knowing our primary allegiance and hope is in our future homeland, the New Jerusalem. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament have outlined for us how to do that, how to live according to his kingdom agenda. And he gave us local churches to plant as outposts all over Babylon. The local church is the place where citizens of the New Jerusalem can gather and worship and minister to and encourage each other as we long for our homeland. And to be ambassadors to those unbelievers native to Babylon. We've called this preaching series Letters to the Outposts because that's what the local church is, an outpost. An outpost from our homeland The new Jerusalem planted here, an inbreaking of the new creation, a taste of that future new heaven and earth planted in this foreign land, Babylon, a land that has a different spirit, a different agenda, worshiping different things, different values, very often contradictory to the values of our homeland. We might also think of the local church as an embassy with ambassadors, But the outpost image carries with it a military connotation because we are in, without a doubt, a spiritual battle, aren't we? A battle that will only grow more intense as we approach the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To modify the metaphor to the Navy, you may have heard it said that the Christian life is not lived on a cruise ship, but on a battleship. Some people are confused in their Christian life because There's suffering and opposition. They're confused because they think we're on a cruise ship. But we're actually on a battleship. We're at war spiritually. And our local church is the outpost, our connection to the homeland. And the book of Revelation is written to seven such outposts in early church history, the so-called seven churches of Revelation. So what kind of book is Revelation? The answer to that question is complicated because Revelation is so unique. There are certainly elements of the apocalyptic visions and symbols, God versus Satan, and prophecy. In these ways, it's much like Daniel. But there are also elements of a letter or epistle. Recently, Tom Schreiner has argued that much of the content of Revelation, rather than teaching something completely different that's not really connected to the rest of the New Testament sort of an appendage to the other books of the New Testament. That's how we can sometimes think of it. Instead, he argues, 
it's very consistent with and really the same gospel message we see in the other New Testament letters. It's just presented differently. The story about Jesus and his birth, life, death, resurrection, return, and reign, and ultimately the new creation where we will dwell with him forever. We see this hope all over the New Testament. It's just presented differently here. Gundry compares the communication style in much of Revelation to political cartoons in our day. I found this really helpful, actually. In a cartoon with a political message... Features are exaggerated and unrealistic pictures are used. But we understand the message, don't we? In fact, we recognize the genre immediately and usually understand right away what's being said. A small child, on the other hand, might look at a political cartoon and and say, how come his ears are so big? Or why is his hand a vacuum cleaner? Or why is he flying through space without an airplane? Because they don't discern the genre. But adults understand immediately what's being communicated. Once you recognize the genre of communication being used. Well, apocalyptic imagery in Revelation was much like that for the original audience. It wasn't something only experts could understand. But something the average person in the congregation could understand. Now, in our particular preaching series this fall, we will only be looking at the first three chapters, these letters to the outpost. A couple of years ago, though, Rick Carmichael did a great Sunday night class on prophecy and then the entire book of Revelation, and I would point you to, that website, to our website for the audio of that class if you're interested. So starting in two weeks, we will begin with these letters to the seven churches or outposts, and this will take us right up to Christmas. And I think you'll be surprised how relevant the challenges of these first century outposts are to our challenges today, as we consider how we can live faithfully as citizens of the New Jerusalem in this fallen Babylon world. So let's read the first three verses of chapter 1 together and consider which people will be blessed as it relates to this book. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the only book in the Bible which tells us its title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the title and subject of the book. It is from Jesus, and it's about Jesus. Revelation is the word apocalypsis, or apocalypse, something revealed now that was previously hidden, an unveiling of truths about Jesus. It's also from Jesus. As Fanning says, Jesus holds the keys to human destiny. There are things prophesied here that must soon take place, he says. It must take place, that is to say God is sovereign. There's no way these things won't take place. But how should we understand that these things will soon Take place. This word soon has a range of meaning. It could mean right away or 
in a relatively brief period once it starts. But in that second meaning, that brief period might not start for a while. All responsible scholars agree that regardless of the detailed interpretation of the book, at least some events are still future, which makes us lean to the latter view. Things may be imminent, but in biblical prophecy, things work on a different timeline than we usually operate. When I say something's imminent or soon, I mean it's probably before my next meal. That's what I mean. But for prophecy, soon means it's the next big thing on the timetable. And the Lord operates on a different clock. Second Peter tells us that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years. I think the best way to capture the takeaway here is that our attitude should be one of anticipation, but not expectation. <clears throat> we should be ready, live with anticipation of the Lord's coming, like the, the Lord's parable of the ten bridesmaids, for instance, remember that parable, but not set specific expectations for the timing. The slowness of the second coming, from our perspective, is often mocked by unbelievers, isn't it? But there's a sense in which we can be thankful for the delay, isn't there? As Worsby says, if we've been a Christian for 20 years, we can thank God Christ did not return 21 years ago, and that's true. <clears throat> now, I wonder if you can see that there's a chain of communication here in the first two verses. This revelation came from God to Jesus, to his angel, to John, to the churches. Word about the author John. I'll try to distill 2,000 years of opinions down to a couple of sentences. The earliest tradition was unanimous, that this was John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. There's been no evidence weighty enough to overturn that claim. In fact, the, the fact that which John is not specified just underscores the argument that this is the most prominent John known to the churches. So John the Apostle is testifying to what he saw in this revelation. <coughs> and this was to be read aloud in corporate worship in these churches. Now remember, not everyone could read. It is estimated that 10 to 20% of people in a typical congregation could read. But everyone could listen and obey. And note carefully, verse 3, those are the people who will be blessed. <coughs> blessing promised here. And the blessing is for those who have the most accurate chart of the end times. No, <laughs> that's not what it says, does it? The blessing is for those who read who hear and who keep what is written in it. As one commentator said, the blessing is for the readers and the heeders. Those who read and those who heed. Those who listen, thanks brother, and those who obey. So, this book is not meant to satisfy your curiosity about future events. It's meant to be obeyed, that we might be faithful to Jesus as the persecution comes. Last summer, I was in a theology class study with some of you women in our church. We had a great time together, and during one of the discussions, one of the ladies reminded us all of something very important. We need to be careful in our Western ivory American tower speculating about when the tribulation might happen. When's this tribulational suffering alluded to in Revelation, when there are Christians right now 
persecuted in places in the world for whom it can't really get any worse. New Testament scholar Robert Stein says the original audience here can be compared to someone like people that are ready to go into the gas chamber or people ready to get lined up to be executed by a firing squad. Imagine someone saying, hey, before you line me up, I need to get my end times chart. <laughs> okay, that's not the purpose of the book. As Joel Beakey says, Jesus said it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own power. Instead, walking by faith, we live one day at a time knowing Jesus is Lord, committing the keeping of our souls to a faithful creator and casting all our cares upon him. Don't try to pry into the future, for God alone holds the key to it, end quote. In other words, Revelation was not written only for elite scholars, okay? The message is understandable, and true disciples will listen and obey and experience the Lord's blessing. <clears throat> now, are there symbols and apocalyptic images in Revelation? Yes. That's why it's so important we do not read this in isolation. There's a temptation today, and it concerns me, especially among people who have a high view of Scripture, ironically. This is kind of all I need is the Holy Spirit to understand the Scripture. Listen, never in church history has that been a good idea. The Lord has used creeds and councils to guide the church. Now, of course only Scripture is infallible. The creeds and councils are not infallible, but neither are you, and neither am I. We all bring assumptions and blind spots to the Scripture as much as anyone else, and we're a lot more fallible on our own than the great councils of church history. If you come to the Scripture with the attitude, all I need is the Holy Spirit, and block other voices of, who also have the Holy Spirit, you're much more susceptible to any number of bad interpretations, from end times predictors to something worse like David Koresh. So we need to read Revelation, indeed all of Scripture, with the church, not by ourselves, but along with the church, both the present church globally for a broader perspective, including people who are persecuted, but also be reading with church history. Good study Bibles and commentaries are essential for this, to make sure we're grounded in the truth when we read and listen and obey in order to receive this blessing. Now, in verse 4, we come, to, we come to a unique greeting from the triune God. Let's read in verse 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a remarkable greeting. Okay, first John is writing the seven churches that are in Asia. Can we have the map on the screen, please? Okay, this is modern-day Turkey, then referred to as Asia. The seven churches are in this region, roughly 50 mile by 50 mile square. In the bottom left, <clears throat> you'll see the island of Patmos. That's where John was writing. And you look, if you look right in the middle, you see the label Lydia. And just under that label, 
you see the church at Ephesus, which is the first church he writes to. And he addresses these churches in order clockwise around this route. So right above Ephesus, you see Smyrna. That's the second church. Then all the way to the top, the third church, Pergamum. Then continuing clockwise, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Starting in two weeks, we will be spending one Sunday on each message for the respective churches. Now, numbers are important in Revelation. The number seven throughout Scripture denotes completeness. All the way back to the first creation week. Seven is used to capture the idea of comprehensiveness. So it's not an accident he chooses seven churches. This is meant to be comprehensive, signifying all churches. These letters in this book is for all churches. In fact, after chapter 3, when the seven letters complete, the individual churches are no longer referenced, only the universal church. So this book is relevant for the broader church, all local outposts in every age, including, most especially for us, Orchard Bible Church. Okay, we can take the map off. So, he starts off, just like Paul or Peter, doesn't he? Grace and peace, just like uh, their letters to churches. This one's also from an apostle. The one whom this greeting is from is three in person. Three froms here. This is fascinating. First, this is from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. This is God. We might think of Exodus chapter 3. Who is this God? I am. He is who he is. You can't pin him down by naming him. He just is. And he is sovereign over history. He owns the past, the present, and the future. Interestingly, there was a Greco-Roman slogan around the time that John writes. Zeus was. Zeus is. Zeus will be. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? There's only one living God that commands history, and it ain't Zeus. But it isn't just that the living God will be. He's not just eternal, but he's the one who is to come. Other English translations render this phrase, and who is coming, an emphasis on the the point of the book. There's one God who reigns, and he's coming back to consummate his kingdom once for all. So, this one is God. But he's also distinct in some way from the other two froms in the greeting. This is also from the seven spirits or who are before his throne. Remember, seven denotes completeness or comprehensiveness. So this is the whole spirit of God. Possibly an allusion to uh, Isaiah 11, but either way, this is an apocalyptic reference to the Holy Spirit. And finally, this is also from the person this revelation's about, Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son, God the Father, as he's called in verse 6. I hope you can see why Revelation is considered the most fully developed Trinitarian book in the Bible. Then, as you might expect in a revelation of Jesus Christ, John expands on this person of Jesus with some beautiful and glorious descriptors that we're going to look at next. Three titles for Jesus, followed by three actions of Jesus toward us. So first, the titles, verse 5. Jesus is the faithful witness. Throughout Revelation, believers are called to be faithful witnesses. The Greek is where we get the word martyr. There are martyrs who suffer for their faithful allegiance to the cause. Jesus was the perfect example of someone who is faithful to the very end. 
despite unimaginable resistance and suffering, he was the faithful witness. Second, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. The original word here, like it's used in Colossians, doesn't mean first one born chronologically. It means preeminent. And in this case, the first to inaugurate the new creation. He owns the new creation. In fact, the new creation is about him. In his resurrection, his glorified body, which is a permanent physical body, he still has it, and he'll always have it, is the first fruits of the new era, the new creation, that culminates in us getting glorified bodies on that great day, with the new heaven and new earth dwelling with him forever. All of that is connected and finds its source in his resurrection. Third, Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. Now remember, John writes this with a a wicked Caesar, we'll talk more about him later, breathing down their necks. Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. Rome's claim and motto was Caesar Curios. Caesar is Lord. One of the first creeds of the church was Iesus Curios. Jesus is Lord. This is so important for us to remember today. As pressure increases for you to keep your faith private, not public, as Mike Bird says, the Romans did not persecute Christians because they said Jesus is Lord of my heart. <laughs> but because they insisted that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom will eclipse that of Caesar. Jesus rules. Now, these titles or descriptors could also be framed, interestingly, as the three offices of Christ. You you look at prophet, priest, and king. He's the great prophet, speaking for God without wavering, the faithful witness. He's the great priest, atoning, For our sins once for all, defeating sin and death in his resurrection. And he's the great king who will return hopefully soon to consummate his reign on this earth. Next, he describes three actions toward us. End of verse 5. The first is especially precious and frames the rest. He loves us. You see that? I always remember that, brother or sister. Imagine these people under intense persecution from what seems like arbitrary actions by a wicked Caesar. Hey, I have a revelation from Jesus for you, suffering Christian. And the first thing I want to say to you is this. He loves you. Craig Keener calls this entire greeting from God with love. So what does this love do? End of verse 5. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. His love drove him to the cross to set you free, if you're in Christ, from the eternal impact of your sin. Times may be difficult and may get much worse for us in this life, but it's temporary. If you're in Christ, he's given you his salvation, and that's eternal. Third, verse 6, he's given you a mission. His mission during this temporary time. He's made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. We're a kingdom. We stand with Christ in his exaltation. We share in his victory. And we're priests in the sense that we mediate blessings to the rest of humanity. We represent him to the world. 
All believers have this mediating role with the world, and one day we will reign with Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He starts with a bang here, doesn't he? Jesus receives glory and dominion. Jesus rules. He rules over those who conspire against God's reign. Whether it's Caesar, whether it's the Taliban, whether it's Hollywood or white nationalism, whatever evil powers lurk, as Greg Beale writes, this includes not just nations and peoples, but satanic forces behind these kingdoms. As our pastor Paul Scrabeck preached from Psalm 2 last week, rulers will resist his reign. That is certain. The nations rage. But more certain is Jesus' triumph over them, over all governments, over all principalities and evil forces and wicked ideologies. His victory is certain. Why? Because it's already happened in his death and resurrection. They are disarmed. Grant Osborne says this, the central event in Revelation is not the second coming. It is the cross. The final defeat of Satan is not the battle of Armageddon. The great victory over cosmic powers and the basis of our salvation is Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. Armageddon is simply the consummation of Golgotha. Jesus rules because he's already defeated all opponents. His kingdom is just waiting to be consummated. Can you taste it, brothers and sisters? I sure can. And the king is coming back. Verse 7. Let's read verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is a clear reference to the book of Daniel, the Son of Man language. In Daniel, you see this mysterious deified man coming on the clouds. He seems divine, but he's human. What's going on? Fascinating that Jesus embraced that title as, as the one he most often used for himself, the Son of Man. And Jesus fulfilled, of course, this mysterious figure who has attributes of God, but is also somehow a man, a man who will be given all rule and judicial authority with an everlasting dominion, uh, Daniel 7. And this consummation will happen in his second coming. And note the difference from his first coming. Only a few noticed his first coming. A few shepherds, some magi. Not so with his second coming. Every eye will see him, and there's going to be wailing. Those who pierced him, those responsible for his crucifixion, this broadens beyond Israel, by the way, to the whole world. As Fanning says, we all in this sense had a hand in his mortal wounding on the cross, and his death for sinners will be universally understood when he comes in power and glory. Jesus tells us himself in Matthew 24, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. With his second coming, every knee will bow. That doesn't mean everyone will be happy about it. In his first coming, many, most, rejected him. Many rejoiced 
over his crucifixion. And despite what you hear today about people saying, oh, you know, Jesus was a good man, he had some, he had some good teaching, giving him his due, sympathetic to some of the things he said. If Jesus were really here today saying the same things he did then, they would want to put him back on the cross. Make no mistake. That's what they did then, and that's what they would do today. But in his second coming, they will be judged, and they will know, and they will mourn, and they will wail. You either bow to the king now, or you bow to him then in his glory when it's too late for you. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the A and the Z. I'm everything in between. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. It's all about him. It's all from him. It's all for him. He owns the past. He owns the present. He owns the future. And he will fulfill it all. He is sovereign over history. The Scottish reformer John Knox said it this way. I'm the beginning of all things and their end. The goal of history. The almighty This greeting has turned into praise. The salutation has turned into doxology. So what should we do with our passage this morning? Receive his blessing. He speaks of the Lord's blessing, not to those who have the most accurate chart, but to those who read, who pay attention and heed and obey this book. So what can we see so far? First, letter A, Trust his control. He wants us to know about his coming, not to satisfy our intellectual curiosity, but that we might stand firm when the persecution comes, that we might have confidence that Jesus rules and will consummate his kingdom, that we might know this king is sovereign over history, over everything that happens, and its goal. He's the goal of history. He's the present tense ruler over kings of earth, the rightful ruler not exerting his full authority until the second coming, and at that time appointing others, his people, to rule with him. Such a great hope for followers of Jesus living under any government, but especially when a government is corrupt and godless. Jim Hamilton summarizes the notes from the Roman historian Suetonius, who wrote about the emperor at this time. Domitian. He was not a good guy. The emperor took for himself many women who were already married to other men. He ordered that his brother Titus be left for dead before he actually drew his last breath. He impregnated his niece, who was already married, and then became the cause of her own death by forcing her to have what turned out to be a doubly fatal abortion. When one of his festal virgins was found to have a secret lover, he had her buried alive. He put others to death for joking about his appearance. He's described as being sensitive about his baldness, having a festering wart on his forehead, which was frequently bleeding from his vigorous scratching. He had a protruding belly and spindling legs. This weak and wicked Caesar insisted on being addressed as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. As Jim Hamilton says, and we complain about our government. <laughs> John likely wrote down this revelation during the end of, or toward the end of Domitian's reign. 
the values and virtues in stark contrast to those of Jesus. Hamilton says this. It's important to recognize the obvious. Persecuted people tend to feel persecuted. Persecuted people are not normally inclined to feel that God has blessed them. Persecuted people are not normally inclined to praise God. So when persecuted people claim to be blessed, and when persecuted people praise God, they are behaving in abnormal ways. And I'll just add that get the attention of Babylon. Now, we will likely never experience persecution in any way like the original audience. But we can be hurt by people or by society. We can be blasted as ignorant, bigoted, intolerant, claiming the gospel's true, that Jesus is the only way to be right with God. We can be shunned even by loved ones just because we believe the word of God. That doesn't feel blessed. So we need this message too. We need to know why we praise God. And it's not because we're successful or wealthy or pain-free. Hamilton again. John must think it's better to stand right before God by faith in Christ, forgiven of all sin, than it is to have all Rome bow before you. Brothers and sisters, let's make sure it's clear to the world, to Babylon, that we believe knowing God is better than not being persecuted. There's an ancient letter that describes what was happening in the early church. It describes Christians this way. They're cursed, yet they bless. They're insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers. When they're punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Oh, might that be true of us. Let me just give you a practical example of how this can play out for American Christians. I don't really watch cable news, but I see clips once in a while on social media, and I get the impression that many people who claim to be Christians want power. They're not willing to suffer insults or not get their way politically. It seems they will make any compromise necessary to get their guy elected. How is that not like the world? That's the spirit of Babylon. Later in Revelation, we read about the maddening wine of her adultery. That is to say, a seductive force out of Babylon that dulls the senses and causes us to be unfaithful to his word. One of the seductive forces out of Babylon today is no doubt political power. It can be so alluring to get our way politically, which can lead to betrayal of our faithfulness to Jesus and his word. Our thinking can become more aligned with our favorite news network than with the Bible. That is a dangerous deception to which we can succumb. Now, we have opportunities for political involvement unheard of in Roman times. Praise God. We can actually vote for our leaders. That's a great right to have. Shouldn't we try to influence Babylon? Of course. We should try to make Babylon as good as it can be. But brothers and sisters, here's the fundamental distinction. Let's not put our hope in a better Babylon. Let's put our hope in our king and the new Jerusalem. Let's work from the outpost he's given us. Let's be faithful to him and his word and his priorities not a political party. Jesus rules, and he will come in power and dominion when he sees fit. Until then, let's trust his control. 
Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. He's got the whole world in his hands. So instead, let's show Babylon how worthy Jesus is to serve and worship, especially when we don't get our way. That's when our testimony means something. Let's not get intoxicated by the maddening wine of Babylon's political power. Let's trust his control. Secondly, and related to this, embrace his mission. These last two will be brief. Holding to faith in Jesus and living for him and his purposes, that's how we fit into the story. Until he comes, we remember what he saved us from and what he saved us for, a kingdom of priests. We represent him to the wider world from our outpost. We mediate his blessings to those in Babylon. We have good news about this king. He offers freedom from sin and victory over death for any who come to him. He offers a new way of living and a new community. This is a far greater gift than political power. And it's our mission to offer this gift. Because before it's our mission, it's his mission. But remember, this gift we can offer will not be compelling to the people of Babylon. If it seems to them, we place greater value on political power. It's not compelling if they can see we're willing to compromise faithfulness to God's word in order to gain power in Babylon. So let's man the outpost and embrace his mission. Finally, very importantly, know his love. Jesus is the king and the judge. There will be mourning and wailing at his second coming. Because the opportunity for repentance will then be gone. It doesn't have to be for you. Maybe you're an unbeliever. Maybe this is all new to you. Now is the day of salvation. And that day will end one day. And, and, and everyone will see that it's over. But you can experience his love right now by turning away from yourself and your priorities to him. And embrace his salvation and his priorities. All of history and all the future is about Jesus Christ. You can turn to him, embrace him as your Lord, your master, your savior, your king. And his love is supernatural and it will sustain you in any circumstance. Look to his cross. His love was demonstrated there. The brilliant scholar Craig Keener says this, in my times of deepest brokenness, when no sophisticated theological argument could comfort me, my deepest assurance of God's love has been to look at the cross and remember that God himself has shared my pain with me. Keener notes that the present tense is used in verse 5. He loves us, perhaps because the suffering church needs assurance that God's love for them continues. He's not forgotten them. Maybe you need that assurance this morning. Maybe your circumstances lead you to believe otherwise. If you are in Christ, listen to his word this morning. Know this. Jesus loves you, and he's not forgotten you. And Jesus rules. And he's coming back to consummate his rule and to make everything right. Even so... 
Come, Lord Jesus. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, only you know the pain that exists in this room right now and those listening. I pray you do a healing work in them, that they would turn to you, that you would not only forgive their sin through their repentance and trust in Jesus, but those who already belong to you would cast their cares upon you, knowing your full control of the situation, knowing your love for them personally. May that sustain us as we go forth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you.